Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. We have delivered a paradigm shift that has the potential to redefine our economies. At COP28 Climate Talks, nations strike historic agreement to transition away from fossil fuels. Plus, there's a saying that what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. Dramatic changes underway at the top of the world thanks to climate change. Thanks, climate change. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment if i become president we would certainly not get back into the paris climate agreement and that's why the fossil fueled coke network loves you nikki haley this is your green news report Okay, Desi Doyen, we didn't know if it would happen. We didn't know if they'd be able to strike an agreement, but they finally have at the United Nations Climate Summit in Dubai. Yep, but first, more news. A bracing backdrop to the UN Climate Summit, the new Arctic Report Card, published by NOAA scientists this week, confirms that the Arctic is warming roughly four times faster than the rest of the planet due to human-caused climate change caused by burning fossil fuels. This past summer was the warmest in the Arctic since at least 1900, in turn increasing sea level rise, altering global weather patterns and wildlife migration and intensifying disasters across the region, like flooding in Alaska and the record wildfire season in Canada. The scientists warn the Arctic is an early indicator of what the rest of the globe can expect as the planet warms. Now, you say since 1900. Is that because that's as far back as the records go, or was it this warm back in 1900? That's as far back as the records go. That's what I thought. But the really big news, at COP28, the U.S. UN climate summit negotiations held this year in Dubai, governments of the world agreed for the first time to explicitly transition away from fossil fuels, the primary driver of global warming. Well, that ain't nothing. After nearly 30 years of international climate negotiations, in the closing weeks of the hottest year ever recorded, it really is the first time that ditching coal, oil, and fossil gas has been codified in international climate negotiations. And the first time they even mentioned in the word fossil fuels? Yes. Known as the first global stock take, the text only calls to end the use of fossil fuels in energy production, not industrial processes, and is not the phase down or phase out of fossil fuels urged by scientists and a majority of countries. Instead, it offers several options, including transitioning away from fossil fuels to achieve net zero by 2050. It includes provisions that critics say give the fossil fuel industry numerous options to to continue polluting, such as relying on unproven technologies like carbon capture and storage. Options like a menu. The deal in Dubai does include concrete commitments to triple renewable energy globally, double energy efficiency, slash emissions of powerful climate warming methane, and accelerate efforts to phase down coal power with targets to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 43 percent by 2030. COP28 President Sultan Al-Jaber, himself an oil industry CEO, said the deal's success will be in implementation. We must take the steps necessary to turn this agreement into tangible actions. 
Delegates from the Alliance of Small Island States, which are countries that have contributed little to global warming but are grappling with rising seas and devastating storms, criticized the deal as weak with, quote, a litany of loopholes that does not cut greenhouse gas emissions fast enough to limit global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Oh, yeah, we're blowing past that target. And it doesn't go nearly far enough to address the costs of global warming to developing nations. COP28 did achieve a decades-long goal of operationalizing a loss and damage fund for industrialized countries to provide funding to developing nations struggling with climate disasters. But there is not a requirement for richer countries to help poorer ones with the upfront cost of transitioning their economies to clean energy. The COP28 text lays the groundwork for next year's negotiations when countries are due to ratchet up their commitments for cutting greenhouse gas emissions. United Nations Climate Secretary Simon Steele called the mixed results a turning point that is both historic and insufficient. This agreement is an ambitious floor, not a ceiling. So the crucial years ahead must keep ramping up ambition and climate action. Steele said the agreement sends a powerful signal to policymakers, business and investors that the world is united in the goal to break away from fossil fuels. Yeah, sort of. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Humanists are discriminated against in 186 countries, which... Um, to save you the masses, almost every country in the world. From Interfaith Alliance, this is the State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in Washington, D.C. The 2023 Freedom of Thought Report from Humanists International is a global survey that assesses every country in the world on the basis of human rights and legal status with regard to humanists, atheists, and the non-religious. I'll talk with Humanist International's Gary McClelland and Nicole Carr of the American Humanist Association. First of all, um, not surprisingly, the Israel-Hamas war and its fallout and includes the grief on all sides, the protests in, on many sides and the huge political tensions. Seems like every year religious themes are key to understanding more and more of the events defining the world we live in. Understanding those themes is getting more difficult and more important, and that's why I am happy to have veteran religion news service journalists Adele Banks and Jack Jenkins back with us for another year-end review of the top stories in religion news from the past 12 months. We are growing the state of belief, building on our 17-year history by partnering with Religion News Service. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation, the State of Belief podcast, I want to make sure you are subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. It would really help to have you subscribe and to tell people you're close to about the conversations you are hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, 
information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Gary McClelland is chief executive at Humanist International, the global representative body at the heart of the humanist movement, championing human rights, secularism, democracy, and rule of law. The American Humanist Association advocates progressive values and equality for humanists, atheists, and free thinkers. Nicole Carr, interim executive director at the AHA, where she also serves as editor for Humanist Magazine and TheHumanist.com. Today, we'll be talking about the 2023 Freedom of Thought Report, which is a truly global effort, and the findings deserve a lot of attention from anyone who values freedom of belief for all. Nicole, Gary, welcome to The State of Belief. Thank Thank you for having us. Okay, let's start with some really basics for our listeners in case they're not familiar with the term humanism and humanist. What does that mean? And what is some of the history of this movement um, as it uh, has arrived at 2023? Well, the official definition of humanism that we formally use on our site is that humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that without theism or other supernatural beliefs affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good. There are many definitions of humanism. I mean, basically, it's the the belief in science and reason and that humans are capable of leading significant, meaningful, and ethical lives without recourse to a supreme being. It's so important that we talk about humanism when we talk about freedom of belief and diverse beliefs, because humanism is a part of that circle. People have every right to espouse humanism and live lives with humanism and humanist principles um, and be respected by the law exactly as the same as anyone else. That is very much what I believe Interfaith Alliance is called to as we do our work. And so we're very pleased and proud to be um, colleagues and allies with the Humanist Association. And Gary, does that definition change as you look at it globally, or is it largely similar uh, defining principles? I think one interesting thing to say is that uh, when we look back at any group of humans, any human civilization throughout history for which we can have evidence, we see evidence that there was groupings of people who wanted to live good ethical lives based on a naturalistic philosophy um, or, you know, of interpreting science, reason, art, literature, etc. Um, and the modern word that we use for those people, at least in English, is humanists uh, or humanism. Um, but we can see that back throughout the course of history in ancient India, um, all across the world, there have been groups of people which we would now call humanists, but in the past may have used different labels. And in fact, across the world now, you'll see that there is a a, a range of different labels used. Some people prefer to call themselves atheists, rationalists, free thinkers. Um, and I think for us, you know, we, we try to use the broad overarching umbrella of humanist, but we understand that within that sort of culture, there is a broad spectrum of identities. Um, and Humanist International actually was founded by the American Humanist Association and four other organizations back in 1952 to really try to bring together and act as a sort of democratic forum for this 
uh, spectrum of organizations which, as I said, have this naturalistic, progressive philosophy based on reason and science, art, literature, etc. What are ways that humanists in this moment organize interesting ways that people have come together not only for um, community support, but also for mobilization of principles that can impact government and local officials? Yeah, there's a whole uh, range of different activities that humanists coalesce uh, around uh, in different parts of the world. So we see, uh, you know, ranging in things from, you know, cultural and art exhibitions, you know, so in the Netherlands, for example, they're very often having art exhibitions based on humanist values and, and cultural events and so on. The environmental issues um, that, that we're facing as a, as a global society, you know, motivates a lot of humanists to take action and get involved in community change and so on. Um, humanist organizations also provide a range of social services. So here in the US, the AHA and its, its adjunct organizations um, provide a whole range of ceremonial support for people going through the various stages of life. In fact, the country which I come from, Scotland, um, we have a long tradition, well, I say long tradition, let's say a 20-year-old tradition of humanist weddings. Um, and it's actually the most popular form of belief wedding in Scotland. So uh, humanists in Scotland conduct more weddings than the Catholic Church and the Church of Scotland. So there's a whole range of different things that humanist organizations and humanist communities do to try and meet the needs of their members. One interesting way, actually, which, which perhaps dovetails into the findings of the report is we see uh, almost like an evolution of the type of services and support that humanist organizations will provide um, based on the level of persecution and or acceptance of humanist communities. So, for example, there does exist humanist communities in Pakistan, uh, to some extent in Afghanistan, in places where you would think, and you would be correct, uh, that those communities would be heavily persecuted and, in fact, outlawed in, in many cases. Um, and so the activities that a humanist organization will be involved in there will be, first of all, very secretive, underground. They may involve simply the act of meeting as a very sort of defiant and brave thing for them to do, to simply exist and to label themselves. Um, but then as you, as you kind of move along into more of an accepting situation, so Let's think here perhaps of a country like Guatemala, where there's perhaps not outright persecution and violence, but where to be a humanist and to embody those values is, is extremely socially stigmatized. The activities that you might be involved in there might be fighting for acceptance, so uh, fighting for the right to register your nonprofit, to exist, to you know operate as an, as an organization. But then you might move on further through the continuum to think of a country like uh, Norway, perhaps one of the most humanist countries in the world, where the, you know, the Norwegian Humanist Association has over 100,000 members for a country of what, about 5 million people. And from that point of view, the activities might be focused on more ceremonial support. They provide, for example, chaplains to all the different institutions of the state. And they provide um, education services in schools. And in actual fact, Norway has a very long tradition of what are called humanist confirmations. Um, so this is a sort of coming-of-age ceremony for young adults around the age of 13 or so, um, where all of their families and friends gather together to mark that kind of passing into, you know, the sort of early stages of adulthood. Um, and that's an extremely popular thing, which, you know, I, I don't know the figure offhand, but a, a very high percentage of young people in Norway will go through that humanist confirmation ceremony. So the, the range, I think, does depend a lot on the extent to which humanists can be and exist in a society. 
the staff of the Humanist Society would be very unhappy with me if I didn't mention that we also do endorse celebrants who do marriages, funerals, naming ceremonies, things like that. We have um, a network of over 400 endorsed celebrants, and we also provide training for chaplains. It's increasingly becoming popular to have humanist chaplains at universities. What is the trajectory? Like, does this does this feel like things are going in a positive direction for humanists, or does it feel like there's a regression right now, or is it mixed? It's certainly a mixed picture. However, I think we can definitely see that um, generally the trend is uh, is not good. You know, it's a negative trending direction. I think we know that all minority groups in these times of rising populism, of economic uncertainty, etc., all minority groups are subject to ostracization, to the othering, um, and used as scapegoats for you know populist rhetoric by uh, government officials in many countries. So humanists are no different uh, from many other religion and belief minorities and minorities generally. So we know that uh, that, that, that is part of the, the global trend. Um, I think Humanist International's position has always been that we advocate for a genuinely open, inclusive form of freedom of religion or belief. So, you know, we, we want to work alongside uh, religious organizations and, and other NGOs to push forward for universal human rights for all. I mean, our, our vision is that freedom of religion or belief is a mainstreamed human right. Um, I think all too often, especially if I can say from some of the US government uh, rhetoric at times, um, religious freedom, as it's often, I think, unhelpfully shorthanded to, um, is used as a way of, 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 of sort of promoting religious exceptionalism. The idea that religious rights can trump, for example, the rights of women, of LGBT folks, etc. Um, I think what we're trying to advocate for is that if we can push forward the human rights of all, including religion and belief minorities and others, that really will benefit everybody. Of course, there inevitably comes a time when you have to balance these rights, but I think that has to be done, you know, gently, thoughtfully, uh, openly, um, and I think that's really the message that we try to get across with this report. Yeah, you really stated it well. We we are an organization that uses terms like inclusive religious freedom or a, a co combination. We use a religious freedom as a complement to civil rights. Religious freedom is not meant to allow you to discriminate against anyone. We, we like to say, like, religion should be a cause of celebration, not discrimination. And if it's used as a discrimination uh, policy, then uh, it, you're probably doing something wrong. Nicole, tell us a little bit about how this uh, report, looking around the world, lands with you with a special lens towards the United States and some of what you're seeing here. And if any of the information or statistics that came up about the United States um, were surprising to you or confirmed things that you were already seeing? This year, the United States isn't one of the 40 updated countries. But what I always find interesting with the report is that, you know, the United States, despite the issues we're having with Christian nationalists, especially the ones that are in our government and on the benches of our courts, still has a rating of free and equal in the report. And I think it just highlights that we have to remember how bad the situation can be in other countries and that to a large extent, even given how much we have to work to protect the civil rights we have regarding religion, 
and separating church and state, we still um, have a lot of privilege in the United States when it comes yeah. to that. Um, we are still allowed to run for office. We we can still take it to court when uh, particular religions are taught as fact in our schools. You know, you, you putting those two side by side is really important because there are people who are very determined to downgrade our rating. <laughs> and so how it's do we, you know, true. how do we show up? alongside one another. I'm a, a Christian and I have a lot of privilege as a Christian, but often Christian nationalists you know, are saying exactly the opposite thing. We need to make common cause with so many other people who say no one gets to decide what is the way that we're going to be stating belief or establishing a religion, which is totally against the idea that America was founded on. And yet people are promoting that idea. And so it's really important that humanists and Christians and other religious people recognize one another as allies so that we can all be free to live our lives. One of the groups that we've had a really interesting time and, and have been honored to kind of be part of a conversation with is the Free Thought Caucus in On the Hill. Um, yeah. And what's interesting about that, and I just want to remind people, there are religious people on the Free Thought Caucus. It is not like an exclusive group only for humanists who pass the litmus test of what is a humanist. It's actually for anyone who wants to promote freedom of thought, freedom of ability to be as you are. It's in Congress. There are members like um, Representative Raskin, Representative Hubman, others, including Jews, Muslims, Christians, and humanists. And I just think it's really an example of what the kind of society we want to build. It's important to remember that the Congressional Free Thought Caucus, which is up to 20 members now, we, we just had some new announcements of people in the last couple of years. One of the new members of Congress, uh, Representative Frost, just joined, and he is religious. In fact, all the members of the caucus are religious, except for Representative Huffman. Jared Huffman is the only person in Congress who has declared that they are a humanist. Representative Raskin, who is the co-founder with Representative Huffman of the caucus and the co-chair, is, as you said, Jewish. You know, we had uh, Representative Raskin on the show to talk a little bit about that and, and other wonderful things. And so it, I, I also just, you know, as both of you are very much noting, it's interesting thinking about the younger generation. And, you know, many of them do not adhere to a religious group per se, but they, I, I think, are very aligned with what might be called humanist. I also remember a friend of mine, I'm not going to out him because, you know, we haven't talked about it, but, you know, he was really interested in something called Christian humanism, which involves like this idea of like, you know, a lot of like, framework and language and yet not inviting kind of a supernatural imposition on it. And so like a moral code that comes out of uh, Jesus' teaching, it's just a, it was interesting to see how people are taking these important ideas, which are you could almost say foundational to the founding of the country. Many people would say it was Christianity that did it, but also it was the Enlightenment and this idea that we can, you know, we can agree uh, across ideas, but with this idea towards improving our world, allowing people to live in peace, allowing people to be free, I think it's just really important. What would you say is the best way for um, those listeners who are interested in learning more? There's, you mentioned a website. I'd love to, to highlight that one more time. Sure. The um, AHA's website is AmericanHumanist.org, 
and Humanist International's website is humanists.international. Beautiful. Now, I like to end my show um, by talking about hope. And I don't know, like, I assume hope is allowed in humanist ideas. Hope yes. <laughs> what gives each of you, if you could offer just, what gives you hope right now in a time where many things feel locked and and many people are grappling with, you know, frankly, a real despair? Uh, what, what gives you hope and, and how can you share that with our listeners? One of the things that gives me a lot of hope is the spectrum of people and groups who are, you know, sort of joining arms to try to protect the country against Christian nationalism. And as you said before, it's as much people of faith who are doing it as humanists and atheists, because it behooves us all to make sure that our government isn't run by a single religion and that the beliefs of a single group of people. But the, the movement to protect against that wave is is what gives me hope. I, I think what I would say, Paul, is that, um, you know, by the time this uh, interview is aired, we will have launched the Freedom of Thought report um, in Congress with a whole range of guests, including, um, you know, U.S. representatives, representatives from the, the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, uh, from the American Humanist Association and others. Um, and I think the fact that we are able to, and indeed invited, to come and make the case um, for this important uh, freedom of religion or belief at the, you know, the literal capital of the most powerful country in the world, and we're able to, to make those arguments, for me, is a real case uh, for optimism. I, I'm not sure if it would have been possible to do it you know, five or ten years ago, but it is possible now. And I think further to that, you know, the conversation that, that we've had with you today, Paul, um, I think is is evidence of conversations which are happening all over the world with people who come to the same issue with different perspectives, different philosophies. Um, and although we could, if we wanted, I don't particularly want to, but we could, if we wanted, focus on what we disagree about, we've actually chosen to focus today on where we agree and where we can work together, where we can put aside our differences, make common cause for a better US, a better you know country, a better, uh, a better world. And, and I think that... The arguments that we're going to make this week when we launch this report, I think, are pretty sound arguments that most reasonable people would agree with. Um, and I think that if we can make that case and we can bring people on side with us, I think that's a real um, positive case for optimism. Gary McClelland is chief executive at Humanists International, the global representative body at the heart of the humanist movement. Nicole Carr is interim executive director at the AHA, where she serves as the editor for The Humanist magazine and TheHumanist.com. Thank you both so much for joining me today on The State of Belief. And I want to mention the 2023 Freedom of Thought Report, which is out now, and everyone should take a look to learn more about humanism and the state of humanist thought around the world. Thank you so much for having us. It's been wonderful to be on the show. Up next, a review of the top religion news stories of 2023. I'll be joined by Religion News Services' Adele Banks and Jack Jenkins. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation podcast at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.
State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. 911, what's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, how can we better support black expectant parents and their babies in light of how vulnerable they are to dying in America? And what root causes must be addressed to do this most effectively? To find out, we spoke to Melissa Franklin, the first black director of maternal, child, and adolescent health for LA County's Department of Public Health. Dr. Franklin's a systems transformation leader with over 25 years experience in organizational development, community engagement, and communication strategy. A lot of focus is on the baby and saving their life, which it was for me. I heard a a faint cry, and then I heard all the work to save her life, right? That's what I could hear. Um, And I was also crashing. I remember saying, I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm going to die. And um, I wasn't immediately attended to. So I think that part would have changed. Would it have changed um, whether or not my babies came early or whether I would have um, experienced something that was life-threatening? I'm not sure. I really do believe that my lifetime of experiences is what contributed to that. That is often lost on this conversation. It's not just the interaction in the health setting or just the um, not being heard. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Whack wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. Elizabeth Brotherton Bunch, Beth oversees communications for the Alliance for American Manufacturing, the AAM, the AAM Gift Guide. These are uh, gifts that are made in America, and we really want to buy America, not just because President Biden says we should, but it's good for the economy and it's good to help our fellow American worker. This is the 10th year of this, Beth. It's amazing how, how time has flown. Yeah, Leslie, thanks for that. We started the gift guide back in 2013. Um, Uh, 10 years ago, because we were hearing when we would go to conventions and talk about policy and meet with folks, we would always get the question, yeah, but where do you find pots and pans that are made in America? Or nothing is made in America anymore. I tried to find something for my house, you know, some sheets or find an American made shirt. I can't find it. What about those things? So we started it back in 2013, really, to sort of highlight, you know, there are projects if you, if you, you take a look around and Uh, you know, do a little bit of research so you can find that are American made. And it just every year kept getting bigger. We kept getting folks writing us in with their ideas. We kept hearing throughout the year, oh, you should feature feature this company that I came across. You know, they're really good. Um, And this is now the 10th year and there are over 200 companies featured on the list that make either all of their products or a good chunk of their products in the United States. Like you said, we find uh, companies in all 50 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico, that are making them their products locally. Um, and you know, we really try to highlight a wide range, have an eclectic mix of, of items on this list. So not only 
different types of products from toys and kids clothes to tools and home goods, um, you know, all the way to auto parts and, and even some electronic items, um, you know, and we also do it at different price points. So you can get stuff that's from, you know, under $10 up to the, you know, those big ticket items that are several thousand. So we like to say that if you take a little bit of time to look, there is something American made for everyone on your list. I can't keep going back to the store and I find it impersonal just to give a gift card. So mm-hmm. this site is extremely helpful for me because I want to support American-made businesses who are producing products here, making products that are better quality, um, support the American business owner and the American worker. And I love the fact that I, you know, I can do it in all different price range and, and it's quicker for me to view it by state or, or by category. Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to the State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. It doesn't seem long ago that we were reviewing 2022 in religion news with my next guest, but here we are 12 months later and many, many important news stories later. So I'm very happy to welcome Adele Banks, project editor and national reporter at Religion News Service, and Jack Jenkins, author and RNS national reporter, back to the state of belief. Welcome to both of you. Okay, here's the list time. Adele, what's on your list for your top stories of 2023? Thank you for asking. I'm going to just tick off some of the major things that I think RNS and others have been covering. Um, first of all, um, not surprisingly, the Israel-Hamas war and its fallout are something that we are covering and includes the grief on all sides, the protests in, on many sides, and the huge political tensions. Um, denominational battles are among things on my list, among them at the United Methodist Church, where thousands of churches have now disaffiliated. Some of those churches are departing and joining the Global Methodist Church, which is a new denomination formed last year with more conservative sets of beliefs. Then another denominational battle is the Southern Baptist Convention, which uh, affirmed the disaffiliation of churches that chose to have women in pastoral roles, including Rick Warren's founded Saddleback Church. And then along with other faith groups, the Southern Baptists are dealing with uh, issues related to sexual abuse. And in this year, one of the things that happened was they were denounced because some of their entities um, were involved in a court filing that um, may uh, limit their liability with some sex abuse claims. Uh, then next on the list, another denomination is Church of England, um, which last month, as our Catherine Pepinster wrote for RNS, uh, the Church of England is giving a test run to services about blessing same-sex couples. And lastly, it's kind of grouped together, but it has to do with violence in houses of worship and the results of that violence. Um, there were three children and three adults who were killed at a Christian school in Nashville. Uh, but there also was major court action where um, there was a conviction in the Tree of Life synagogue killings in Pittsburgh. And then the Justice Department uh, had a sizable um, settlement with victims of the mass shooting at the First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs in Texas. Wow, that's it's a really good list because those of us who maybe are looking at the big national picture forget how important congregations are 
in the life of most Americans who are, you know, going to church and doing the thing. And and the ripping apart of denominations is traumatic for millions of people because they're going through it and and they can't kind of say, oh, on Sunday, I'm going to go to a place of respite and relax. It's actually sometimes a place of great conflict. And what you've highlighted is it is not a place where people can go to escape what's happening in the world or to feel, you know, necessarily elevated. Sometimes they're drawn more deeply into it. And so one of the the questions, and I know you, you, you must have interviewed a lot of people, is there like, are there particular people when you think of, especially the denominations and the denominational split, are there, are there individuals or, or churches that you remember interviewing that really kind of made you go, oh, this is, this is really heartbreaking or who illuminated something for you? Um, well, one thing I was going to mention is that um, I recently wrote about polarization, and one of the things that struck me is how the uh, clergy have to deal with people divided, not just about the direction of their denomination or their faith group, but just all of these cultural issues. And it's like it's an added job description for these clergy that they have to try to help people through. And it's not just in their sermons, it's in one-on-one -on -one conversations. And um, it's got to be very stressful and it probably adds to the issues of clergy burnout and as well as exhaustion. So that's part of what struck me is just hearing clergy talk about how they try to do this um, to keep going and keep their congregations going. Well, it's really interesting because I think back to my seminary days, and that was not a topic that we discussed, like how to keep a congregation together that is deeply riven by um, issues. I mean, it's it is uh, it's difficult for people who only do that kind of moderation or mediation, and uh, and for people who are doing that on top of running a church with all of the other financial things, it's or or synagogue or mosque. I mean, these this is not, and there's no religious tradition that has escaped the, the divisions of, of the the kind of culture wars, but also of um, sexual abuse scandals and, and things like that. Do you, I mean, this is a, this is a subjective statement, so, but, but do you think that there has been progress made around uh, clergy abuse, or do you feel like we're still kind of treading water? If you look at the various stories that you watch, and I know you have watched this so carefully and been such a service to all of your, your readers, including myself, how do you, where, where are we with clergy abuse? Um, I think that it is an ongoing issue and that there were some issues with Me Too, uh, for instance, and then Church Too, that helped bring it to light in a greater way. Um, and there have been major statements and uh, even like litanies where different groups have said, we're sorry, and what can we do better? But there's still a lot happening that still needs to be addressed. And especially the survivors and the advocates for survivors are continuing to uh, beat that drum. And so I don't wouldn't say it's certainly not over. And and I think that in the case of Southern Baptist Convention, that's just one example of how things still keep popping up where people are angry and other people are like, well, what can we do? So it's it's I don't want to say never ending, but it definitely hasn't ended. Yeah. Watching with some disbelief and when Rick Warren's church was thrown out of the Southern Baptist Convention because they had a female pastor, it was one of those moments you're like, wow, who would have thought 15 years ago when Rick 
Warren was at his, you know, apex and, and was quite a conservative voice in many respects that that he would be disfellowshipped into the church that he founded. I mean, it's a very it just shows you how many people are caught up in this broader battle around gender, about religion, around all these things that are that are balled up in in some of these statements and some of these actions of the, the denominations. So I should point out that Rick Warren is is the founder of Saddleback, but he's not the minister there now. But he was sort of the spokesperson for the church uh, about this debate. And I should also note that the debate isn't completely over because even though the decision was made about his church and several others that had past women who were pastors, there is a second vote coming up for uh, like a constitutional change that kind of codifies this more. And there are some people that are concerned about whether there should be a second vote. And so there, that still kind of hangs in the balance in some ways for the Southern Baptist Convention. So that's one of the things that we'll be wondering about for next year. Oh, yeah. Stay tuned. Well, you know, as an American Baptist with, you know, soul freedom and all that, you know, ability to fellowship, uh, it, it seems like to codify something like that would be in my humble opinion, not something that would be very Baptist, but there you are. No one's asking my opinion on this one. I'm so, so surprised to hear. Uh, Adele, thank you so much. And I, I just want to mention one one story that you wrote that we talked about it last time you were on, which just was the a marvelous reporting, uh, an example of the value of religion journalism, which is interviewing the, the, the women around the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. And just, you know, what, what that, you know, that maybe didn't make it to the top, you know, religion story of the year, but it was such an important way that we can tell stories from people whose stories maybe got missed and um, before. And so just a, just want to raise that one up for our listeners uh, to go back and look at that if you hadn't had a chance to look at it. Okay. Thank you. Jack Tom. Jenkins, you you um, have your own list, but I'm I'm just gonna um, just say it. You are also have a deadline coming up that is uh, imminent, and uh, and and we all are are celebrating that um, that wonderful um, thing to come. So so Jack, do you want to uh, share uh, with listeners at all uh, uh, about yeah. what's coming up for you? Uh, my my wife and I are expecting a child any day now. And uh, so, you know, it, it, it if is. If this interview a... gets cut short, people, it's it's because it just happened. Exactly. Uh, so you'll you'll know <laughs> what a great blessing. So Thank you. Um, Thank just you. fantastic. So, Jack, what what rises to the top of of your religion list? Yeah. Um, so I'll note that I overlap with Adele in that in noting that the Israel Hamas war continues to be a significant religion story, and not only abroad, where obviously a lot of the news is happening, but also here domestically um, and at the intersection of religion and politics, it's been a fascinating story to cover um, for, and particularly for Democrats and the religious communities that often vote for Democrats, right? And, you know, we know we've, a lot of coverage has, has looked at splits within the American Jewish community where the majority supports the way President Biden has been handling the war, but a vocal minority has um, persistently argued the opposite. Uh, we, we also saw Congress have a public rift over whether or not anti-Zionism constitutes anti Semitism, and that was at the center of that rift were prominent Jewish members of Congress, prominent Jewish Democrats who were disagreeing on that issue. 
we also have seen Muslim Americans be very vocal in criticizing the Biden administration um, to the point where there there are concerns about um, for whether or not Biden will have to wrangle with the fallout from his handling of the Israel-Hamas war next year with um, constituencies in Michigan where there's a heavy Muslim American population. And outside of that, there's been broader faith-based pushback, a myriad of, of vigils and protests that religious groups have participated in, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and being critical of, um, of the Biden administration's handling of it, both mainline Christians and, and, and also black Protestants in particular, a group of black clergy took out um, a full page ad in the New York Times recently um, signed by 900 um, black faith leaders and clergy calling for a ceasefire and, and, and voicing some criticism with the Biden administration. And that happened after a meeting with the White House. And that's not the only um, meeting that the White House has had with faith communities who have voiced similar dispositions. And whether or not this will cost Biden votes the next go round this following year is, is anyone's um, you know guess. But I feel certain he's going to be facing some questions from faith communities um, as the campaign heats up going in to next November. Meanwhile, also on Capitol Hill, you know, there's continued debate over Christian nationalism following the ascendancy of, of Speaker Mike Johnson, who, while he has been dismissive of the term Christian nationalism, has espoused various forms of Christian nationalism throughout his career. Um, and there's been a lot of dialogue and reporting about his past rhetoric on those issues. Uh, meanwhile, the Christian nationalism debate continues to be present nationwide, everything from the passage of a bill in the state of Texas that allows for um, public schools to have chaplains um, to broader school board fights in general, where you know um, folks espousing forms of Christian nationalism are either yelling at school boards or being elected to school boards. And we're seeing um, various different groups revving up for this 2024 election um, in ways that kind of uh, have sparked elements of Christian nationalism in various churches and candidates. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's been the fallout from the overturning of Roe v. Wade that continues nationwide. Everything from referendums in states like Ohio that have consistently benefited abortion rights activists um, to lawsuits filed by religious leaders in various states um, that, to actually overturn the abortion bans in those states, making a, a, a religious argument for um, against these abortion bans, um, to um, former President Trump suddenly taking a more moderate comparatively um, stance on abortion compared to his previous rhetoric on the issue. Um, to even Catholic lawmakers, Catholic Democrats in the House of Representatives reissuing a statement of principles in support of abortion rights, um, you know, in, in some ways in defiance of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Speaking of Catholicism, my next big story um, is the removal of Joseph Strickland from, from his perch as a bishop of Tyler, Texas, by Pope Francis. Um, that's part of a, a couple of different things Pope Francis has done in kind of um, pushing back against some of his more um, strident conservative critics. Bishop Strickland in particular was on the farthest right wing of the U.S. Bishops Conference. He also you know, led a prayer at the Jericho March, which is the, part of the lead up to January 6th. And so, you know, the kind of the dialogue around how that happened, um, why that happened, and, you know, even the most recent Bishops Conference meeting in Baltimore, the fact that Strickland was just kind of outside the Bishops Conference, um, uh, spending time with supporters, there's been a lot of drama and, and dialogue around that. And, and then finally, for me, another big religion story that got a lot of coverage when it occurred was the expulsion of lawmakers from the Tennessee legislator, um, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, 
um, over their activism calling for uh, gun control legislation in that state following horrific mass shooting. One of the things that became really clear pretty quickly during that whole debate was that both of those lawmakers uh, appealed to religious rhetoric in, in making their cases. Um, and also, it, it turns out that both of those lawmakers actually kind of cut their teeth in progressive religious activism before becoming uh, members of the state legislature. So those are the main um, big five for me that I thought were particularly interesting and impactful and kind of illuminating various different elements of, of the religious landscape and how it intersects with the political landscape in the United States. There's really not a lot of positive news right now, but if you have any stories to share, I'd be interested in hearing them. Yeah, I um, just wrote a story recently about polarization and preaching and talked to clergy about how they have worked to try to reduce it if they possibly can. And a rabbi at Washington Hebrew Congregation um, in D.C. talked about um, having learned from the One America Movement organization that there are ways to try to get people to listen to one another. They even have a script that she used at a workshop in her uh, synagogue to help people try to have quote, kind of healthy conversations is what I think they called it. And there were instances in this particular um, synagogue where you have parents who discovered that their college age kids feel completely differently on this issue than they do, or younger folks, millennial Jews who were looking at Facebook and seeing that some friends that were, they were close to also were like completely on a different side than they were. And so anyway, at this workshop, this rabbi mentioned offering the script to people to use with um, those that they were trying to converse with. And she gave an example of a young woman who used it with a friend, they were just really thought they had just really severe differences. And the woman told the rabbi that she thought she'd saved her friendship, basically, mm -hmm. by using this technique. So um, that's an example where people are trying and sometimes succeeding in finding ways to continue to be friends uh, in the midst of something where people are so divided. At Interfaith Alliance, we, you know, listeners know, we, we have an interfaith community pledge um, that we've invited people to to sign on to, which really says we'll show up for each other, because there's also you know simultaneously, as every you know you two certainly know, and our, our listeners have heard, a, a spiking um, incidents of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia that were already mm -hmm. incredibly high, uh, the highest since 2001, and now spiked even further and resulting in real violence. And so the the pledge, which for listeners, if you haven't signed on to the pledge, please do, is really about just showing up for people and committing to showing up for people, even in this really hard time. I will note that um, you know, one of the interesting things that has struck me in doing this reporting is multiple folks from across the spectrum on um, their views on the Israel-Hamas war have really repeatedly talked about how emotionally difficult this has been, not only because of their reaction to the conflict itself, but also how difficult it is that they feel like rifts between their colleagues. These are members of Congress who are saying this to me, as well as um, activists in the interfaith space. And, and I bring that up because actually a, a chapter in my book um, kind of talks about how particularly on Israel-Palestine, how interfaith communities have often been a um, the communities that, uh, particularly in um, liberal and progressive and democratic circles, that leaders have turned to those interfaith communities to help navigate those waters for them, um, that those relationships have been really important. It is unclear to me if or how those communities would be able to navigate the ongoing 
um, uh, war and and um, feelings on it. But it, it, I think the depth of the emotional um, angst that I'm seeing and hearing from folks on um, this this war is is such that uh, it, it speaks to how long those relationships have been important to those communities um, and raises the you know the question of, of how they can or will be helpful um, to those coalitions in the future. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, you don't really you, you can't you're not as affected by people who you don't care for. Uh, or you don't care about, uh, but pe- when you when that kind of when you feel when that riff happens and it's it, we're you know we're many of us are experiencing it. It's really it does really weigh on you, and it's you know and and you know unfortunately the inability to see um, a way forward right now. It's a few people. Everybody's I think trying, um, but there, there 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 hasn't been a lot a lot of. Um, and you know the ongoing suffering, and, and that is very real. And so we're um, anyway, we're very much lifting up that um, you know in uh, in our hopes that that the the new year will bring some resolution. Um, speaking of the new year, anything that you're kind of turning the corner to um, and saying, okay, you know, as I look to around the corner. Um, we mentioned the election, so I want to spend a little time on that and, and any thoughts you all have on, on how you see the election playing out, although there's been some good, already some good commentary on that. But um, any other stories that feel like they're on the horizon that you're, you're, intri- you're intrigued by and that you're looking forward to exploring more? I just want to add one thing about the election is that um, I am hearing that the the uh, concerns about mobilizing voters will be starting sooner than maybe it has in previous years. And mm-hmm. every time you think that the mobilization efforts have done what they are going to do, like especially around uh, black churches and people of color who are concerned about um, things like what they see as voting limitations and that kind of thing across the country. Uh, every time you think they've expanded as far as they could go, they do things that maybe show that no, there's even more to do. So I think that that's one of the things I'll be watching is how the mobilization maybe kicks off in a big way sooner and and leads to whatever the result will be in the fall. Mm. Are you are, are there particular groups that you're interested in looking at or are you are there is it are, is it is it you know DNC and GOP or are there um, kind of um, para denominational groups or you know do you have do you have any uh, any leads on who we should be watching? There, is, there are groups that deal with. There's like it's a consortium of a bunch of groups that have worked in the past together. Might include um, the uh, African American Clergy Network and Sojourners, and it's a long list of different groups of people that have worked together. Uh, and then there's also um, some of the consortiums that are statewide, um, like Faith in Florida, the one that whose leader recently. Um, encouraged uh, churches to start having their own um, black history curriculums in light of the fact that in Florida, for instance, there were limitations. So those kinds of groups uh, have always been big on the voter mobilization, but I'm understanding that they're going to be doing it at a greater rate than in Uh the past. Yeah. Or at least hoping to. Yeah. Um, Jack, anything that you're, aside from a a new member of the household, anything that you're um, <laughs> anticipating going around the corner to the new 2024? 
Yeah, the, so the the the, er, the the early primary season, I'm out for. So I'll, I'll see y'all on the other <laughs> side of that. Um, All right. But the yeah, um, the uh, I'll say that uh, mentioning earlier the you know the the, the blowback from um, the Israel Hamas war, and there does seem to be a disconnect. And we have a couple polls that show like widespread support among Democrats for a ceasefire that is not represented um, in the um, in the White House or in Congress right now. Whether or not that'll matter will be an interesting question moving in to 2024. On, the, on another issue, again, of abortion, um, I would expect Democrats to repeat the, um, the, the, the strategy that they have used in the last couple of cycles, which is kind of drilling down on that point, given that it does not seem to be a winning issue for Republicans at the ballot box um, for over and over and over again. Conversely, I should note, you know, there has been some frustration given, as mentioned, um, Trump's more moderate take on um, abortion um, compared to his previous rhetoric now um, among, uh, you know, kind of strident anti-abortion activists about what to do in this next election and whether I'm curious whether there will be clashes between, um, you know, Trump and them. And now that assumes, of course, that there isn't a Nikki Haley ascendancy and that we end up with Nikki Haley as the nominee instead of Trump. Um, although, quite frankly, I would be surprised if Trump didn't run anyway, irrespective of whether he wins the Republican nomination. Um, but if Trump is the nominee, you know, I am also curious about how he leans into faith, right? And, you know, previously it's been a big part of both of his um, pres presidential campaigns, his most recent ones. And, um, and like, you know, deeply leaving in on that evangelical vote, you know, in 2020, he launched his Evangelicals for Trump initiative at a Spanish speaking church in Florida, you know, leaning in on Hispanic evangelical votes, I think is something I would expect him to repeat this go round. Um, and, and curious about whether or not the his rhetoric on abortion alters that for him. I'm also curious if his uh, if his uh, evangelical supporters, the the cadre of the advisors that he surrounded himself, whether they all come back. There was a little back and forth about whether or not they wanted to back him earlier on. Most of them seem to be coming back into his fold over time. Um, and just whether or not he campaigns in the same way as he did the last two go rounds um, when it comes to his rhetoric around faith. Um, or if he just leans into other dialogue and talking points that we've been seeing him making on the on the um, on the campaign trail so far, that's less about faith and more kind of about his own Trumpism, if that makes any sense. <laughs> All right, Adele M. Banks is project editor and national reporter at Religion News Service, an award-winning journalist. Award-winning journalist and national reporter for Religion News Service, Jack Jenkins, is the author of the book American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country, now in paperback. So thank you both for being with us again on The State of Belief. And who knows? I think things probably will calm down in 2024. Maybe we won't have any reason to have you back. But my guess is that we will. And thank you so much for keeping us informed in such a, a measured, intelligent, and uh, an empathetic way. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. And that's all the time we have for this week's The State of Belief. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping The State of Belief going. 
I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And if you're getting something out of this show, share it with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going when the show is over. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your networks. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I'll be in conversation with preacher, stand-up comedian, and best-selling author Susan Sparks. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.